0: This week, a lecture about Native American boarding schools from the mid-17th to the early 20th centuries. Known more recently as American Indian Residential Schools, their primary objective was to civilize, or assimilate, Native American children and youth into Euro-American culture.
1: The moment you step foot in Carlisle, they basically, they stripped everything that was Native American of you. Every aspect of your heritage. From your hair, to your clothes, to your language, to your religion. These 10,000 kids, most of them, who didn't speak English at any, on any level, were baptized as Christians without ever being told what that meant. More
0: with Black Hills State University professor, Thomas Wyatt, after this.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: our discussion of Native Americans. This is one of two different discussions we're having. Um, I want to make clear um, that we're not talking about the Indian Wars in, in this kind of uh, lecture. Uh, that's going to be in a couple weeks. And we're going to use that as a way to link kind of wars throughout the 19th century, all the way up to and including the Spanish American War. So our focus is. We're, kind of around that, we're thinking more kind of legal policy and, and issues and, and, and such. So the, the goal is to think in that broad 19th century way. So uh, our start point uh, is a couple key things we need to kind of deal with. Um, the second half of our semester, one of the big questions we're picking up on uh, is, what does it mean to be an American? Right? And who can claim to be an American, that's one of the big questions uh, that's going to kind of take us through uh, the end of our semester into uh, as we deal with the 19th century. So um, in upcoming weeks, we're going to talk about, you know, immigrants, we're going to talk about uh, kind of the progressive era and things like that. But I think this is a good start point um, to think about who is claiming uh, American status and what does that mean. So uh, we're going to build from some of the ideas we talked about with manifest destiny some of the discussion of political violence, uh, and build into these other things. A couple key concepts that we need to deal with, uh, first of all, is settler colonialism. Have have you heard that phrase before? I see a couple yeses and a couple noes, some heads kind of bobbing every which way. Uh, Okay, Uh, when we talk about settler colonialism, let me give you kind of a, a general definition here. Uh, we're talking about colonialism that seeks to replace uh, the original population. So colonialism that seeks to replace the original population with new settlers. Hence, settler colonialism. Uh, and, and this is done in a couple different ways. Uh, one way uh, is through kind of depopulation, right, an intentional effort to remove either physically, you know, like the physically take them to another place remove, or to exterminate depopulation. A second way that settler colonialism functions uh, is through assimilation. Getting the previous population to transition into membership in the new population. And there's a third way, right? The recognition of a previous population as a unit within this new organization. We're not going to see that nearly as much. Uh, We're going to see the first two more uh, in our discussion today. So settler colonialism, we need to kind of keep in mind. Second big thing we need to think about is the frontier. And what is the frontier? How does it function? Uh, And for that, we're going to deal with uh, Frederick Jackson Turner. In 1893, Frederick Jackson Turner, uh, as a historian at the University of Wisconsin, delivered a lecture uh, about the frontier. Um, The Census Bureau in 1890 had said there was no longer a frontier. And one of the things that Turner wanted to talk about was uh, what the frontier had meant in American history. He essentially argued that America doesn't exist without a frontier, that uh, America's existence is directly tied to this notion of a frontier. But what is a frontier is, I think, a fantastic question. Uh, And in Turner's construction of this, basically the frontier in American history has always functioned as basically a colony. The same way overseas colonies had functioned for European powers, this is how the frontier functioned for the United States. It was a place for uh, raw materials to be produced, uh, a dedicated market to export finished goods, But more importantly, it was a safety valve. People disgruntled at home would move to the colonies. Well, in the same way, people who are disgruntled on the East Coast would move to the frontier. And that process reproduce kind of what it meant to be America. so you have this kind of contiguous colonies thing that's kind of right up close to it. And what makes the American frontier different than some of these other colonies is that there's this constant integration of the frontier into what's called the metropole, into the the mother country itself. So that's an important distinction. But Turner doesn't necessarily see the the frontier in purely positive light. He sees it as an important space for the recreation of what it means to be American. But he also says, uh, I want to quote a piece from him. He says that the democracy born of free land. And by this he means kind of the frontier is a space where no one can, has claimed this land, which is not true. But like, that's the conception. Um, the democracy born of free land, strong in selfishness and individualism, intolerant of administrative ex- experience and education, and pressing individual liberty beyond its proper bounds has its dangers as well as its benefits. So, from Turner's perspective, the frontier is an important location and it's necessary for defining the American character, but it's also a place that has generated a very unique vision of what it means to be American, right? And one that is very much tied to very kind of brutal and violent realities, right? Uh, so, that's important for us, right, in terms of thinking about. Um, Native Americans and, and, and that connection. Because again, in, in Turner's vision of the frontier, it's free land, it's open space. So he's conceptualizing it as a space without people already there. Okay, third thing we need to think about are ideas in the 19th century about social development. And for that, we're going to turn to Lewis H. Morgan, who wrote a book in 1877 uh, called Ancient Society. The title is, it's a 19th century book, so like the title is like forever long. We just call it ancient society. Uh, and basically, what he's talking about uh, through kind of studying kinship relationships and, and, and such uh, is that all societies move through a, a uniform and identifiable path into civilization, from savagery to barbarism to civilization. Right? And, and savagery he identifies as kind of that hunter gatherer kind of lowest rudimentary level of technology, very little in terms of hierarchical social organizations, but it 's mm. the start it is in his mind the most primitive and then you move into barbarism, which uh, you might see as analogous to bronze Age technology, right the use of You know, smelting technology to create, first of all, iron tools, but then into bronze and more intricate social organizations, more sedentary lifestyles. His vision of how this works is based in technology, but then also in sedentary life. So from hunter-gatherers to more permanent uh, societies, and then ultimately into what he defines as civilization, which he defines, breaks up into ancient, medieval, and modern. So kind of how we understand the Western world and its breakup. And of course, America is the pinnacle. It's the top. It's the most modern of all places. It is the most civilized. So okay, great. Um, So if you take this notion, kind of all societies, because he talks about what's called monogenesis. Are you familiar with this term, monogenesis? That all people come from one singular creation. Samantha, do you have a question? Yeah. So, Morgan
2: America was like the pinnacle. Did Morgan view like the early colonists who were like technically British colonists as like savages? Isn't oh no
1: no, I mean? no 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 no! <laughs> um, they still are part of civilized world. They are just um, so the uh, again Morgan's vision is kind of Anglo-Saxon. America, uh, Anglo-Saxon vision. Uh, so the British are, the British, even the French, I guess he would throw in, um, but kind of Western European conceptions are the height of civilization.
2: Okay. So that includes all the Western world, not just.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah, uh, Brandon.
0: Would we have included the, uh, the five civilized tribes who had
1: oh. civilized into I mean, American society? the five civilized tribes. He would have put them somewhere in that space between barbarism and civilized. Okay. They're not. Where the, there they're, they're not there yet. Um, at least that's my understanding of Morgan. And I admit that I have not read everything that Morgan wrote, so I don't know 100%. But I think that's where he'd put them. He puts most Native Americans in barbarism or kind of savagery into barbarism. That's kind of where he sees Native Americans. But I don't know if he would necessarily classify. So the civilized tribes, I think you would say, are imitating the civilized that may not necessarily be civilized. Good questions. These are fantastic questions. All right, so Morgan is obviously not the only person out there, and and his ideas are not the only ideas, but they are representative of kind of a, a notion, a set of ideas. And this idea that Native Americans aren't, necessarily civilized or they're on maybe an earlier edge of civilization and that one of the things that could be done is to help progress them into the civilized era into the modern world the civilizing mission uh, which we'll actually talk a lot about as we go through the rest of the semester this kind of notion of kind of uh, what later individuals will call the white man's burden all right, we'll, we'll talk about that. So those type of ideas. But also then the idea that Native Americans are potentially an impediment to progress. right? Because they are stuck in barbarism. And so if they're stuck in barbarism and there's no way to bring them into the modern world, what do you do then? Right? So these conceptions of who is modern, who is not, whether or not progress can happen, you tie that then to this idea of the frontier and notions of settler colonialism. And, and I think what you get is the intellectual framework for understanding what, what's going to happen throughout the 19th century. And again, like I said, we're not going to talk about the wars. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But everything short of war, here we're going to talk about in terms of settler colonialism and its connections. Does that make sense? Any questions before we move on? Fantastic. Alright, so we'll start with the Trail of Tears. All of you have heard of the Trail of Tears before, I assume, yes? Okay. How many of you have heard about the Georgia Gold Rush? Okay, so a couple of you have. All right. In 1828, in northern Georgia, in the Appalachian portions of Georgia, they find gold. Hence the Gold Rush. Um, but people are, are kind of pressing into this area, increasing population, um, and then in 1830, a second kind of vein is going to be found but this is going to be in land claimed by the Cherokee. that doesn't kind of stop the the miners from going into that territory. and the Cherokee are like please please don't please get out of it. It's actually called the great intrusion. I mean, what a what a wonderfully kind of almost Victorian intrusion, Right, this is an invasion of miners into uh, Cherokee lands. Um, and because of that, there's this desire to kind of take those lands out of the hands of the Cherokee. Now, the gold rush doesn't lead to the Indian Removal Act. I want to make that clear. It's not like this created that, but it made it easier for people to support the Indian Removal Act. Oh, there's gold in them in our hills? Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Um, there had already been a push uh, to remove some of this land from what are referred to as the five uh, civilized tribes, right? The the Cherokee, the Muscogee, or the Creek, the Seminole, uh, the Choctaw, and, and the, the Chickasaw, right? I got all five, right? Wow. Okay, adding's bad for me. Okay. Um, so they want, there's already that movement that's going there. And, and in 1830, Congress passes the Indian Removal Act which empowers the federal government to send out negotiators. That's all it does. You can send out these negotiators to to create treaties to exchange lands in the southeast for lands in what's designated Indian Territory, right? that portion of the Louisiana Purchase Territory uh, west uh, of Arkansas. The very first of these treaties is actually the Treaty of Dancing Rabbit, Rabbit Creek with the, uh, the Choctaw in 1831. Uh, and so they signed this agreement to move from basically Georgia uh, to, uh, to Indian Territory. And they're going to do it in three waves between 1831 and ultimately 1833. Not all the Choctaw. We're talking uh, about 15,000 out of a population of just shy of 20,000 so a vast majority the thing is the first wave hits a blizzard second wave is going to be decimated by cholera and all three waves are going to face significant uh, supply shortages and kind of general incompetence on the part uh, of the federal uh, Individuals who are leading this process, so that all said and done, something like two to four thousand people are going to die in the process of moving. And it's actually in this Choctaw removal that we actually get the first time people use the phrase "Trail of Tears." But that's the fir- like that's the start point. Uh, there's uh, an effort uh, actually to to get a treaty with the Seminole in 1832, uh, and what. The- What they do is they they send a negotiator down to to the Seminole, and the Seminole are like, eh, we're not so sure how we feel uh, about this this land in Oklahoma. Can we send some people to check it out? And so they do. Yeah, sure. So they go to Oklahoma, and they come back. And the thing is, there's this report that supposedly uh, these uh, Seminole uh, uh, leaders signed, saying, oh, yeah, this land is terrific and wonderful and amazing, except for none of them actually signed it. And so when the Seminole say, well, then we're not moving, uh, the US government says, well, yes, you are. You have to. And that's what is going to lead to eventually the, the second Seminole War in 1835. But again, that's a couple of weeks from now. We'll talk about that. But So you get some people who are going to fight back against removal. But I think what's interesting when we think about the the Cherokee, the Cherokee's response to this whole process is Perhaps the, the greatest example that they've have at some level assimilated parts of white culture. Right? They've taken bits and pieces and said, like, well, if you're going to make us do this, let's do this. Brandon, you look like you're like, nope, that's not.
0: They do. The, the cons, Cherokee have white so supporters.
1: That, benefited them? Yeah, so the Cherokee actually have a, a number of people that are on their side in this process. right? Um, so in, in the early 1800s, Georgia ceded a large portion of its Western land claims um, to the United States government, which basically is going to encompass Alabama and and, and Mississippi. Um, And then in that process, the Georgia gives up its land claims, but the Cherokee don't give up their land claims. Uh, In 1825, they basically uh, create a new capital, uh, and in 1827, write a constitution I mean, if you look, if, if the whole point is Native Americans need to assimilate into white culture, I mean, the fact that the Cherokee have done exactly what whites have said do uh, and doesn't seem to matter seems to be a big deal. They actually passed a law in 1828 saying that any member of the Cherokee Nation that signs some sort of removal agreement or land claim agreement without the approval of the council has committed treason against the Cherokee Nation. And so they... They've got this figured out, right? So when the, when the Indian Removal Act comes along, they're already set and ready to go. Uh, the problem is Georgia has looked to the U.S. government saying, hey, you promised us when we ceded you all this land that you would come and help us remove portions of, of Native Americans living in our territory, but you're not doing that. So the Georgia State Legislature just passed a series of laws giving them the power to basically do whatever they wanted. And the Cherokee sued. In 1831, it goes to uh, the US Supreme Court, at which point um, the US Supreme Court says, we're not going to hear your case, which I've always loved. I've always loved that the US Supreme Court can just be like, yeah, no, thanks. We understand this is a huge concern and has major ramifications, but we're just, we're going to have tea that day. The next year, in 1832, another suit makes its way to the Supreme Court. Uh, and They're suddenly actually going to hear the case in Worcester versus the state of Georgia. And the Supreme Court actually sides with Cherokee in this, at least on some level. And basically the ruling here is that uh, the state of Georgia doesn't have the right to pass these laws and that you know, uh, affect the Cherokee because the Constitution is quite clear that when it comes to the phrases Indian Affairs, only the federal government has that authority. So Georgia's attempts to kind of control the Cherokee violate the Constitution. Now, President Jackson's response to this is basically cool. Don't care. There's the the famous the like uh, the thing like the you know this idea that he said you know, Marshall has made his decision. Let's see him enforce it. Is that what you were going to ask yeah. Brandon? Ask you
0: about that. Was that his response to
1: it? Well, so there seems to be no evidence that shows him actually saying this. Now, could he have said it out loud and no one wrote it down? Yeah, entirely possible. We don't have any documented evidence, as far as I've been able to find, that says that he said that specifically. But the sentiment is there. Right? The sentiment of, I, you know, basically, I'm, I don't care. Uh, and, and on some level, it's not so much that he's not going to enforce the ruling. It's just that he's, he, he's not going to side with the Cherokee. Right? The Supreme Court has sided with the Cherokee. You can't remove us in this way. But there's still the, the Indian Removal Act. Jackson supported, so he doesn't really have a problem. But it all gets really kind of interesting, because 1832, remember that Jackson basically declared war on South Carolina over the nullification crisis. So, I mean, like, it's a busy year for him, Um, What ultimately ends up happening is in 1835, a treaty is signed with a faction of the Cherokee. Basically, the the whole thing is uh, after the decision from the Supreme Court, and it seems like they've won, but this doesn't look like the federal government's going to care, a rift begins to develop amongst the leadership of the Cherokee. So I'm saying, well, it's inevitable that they're going to force us to leave. So let's get the best terms we can now. And another group saying we're not leaving under any circumstance. And what happens is the group that ultimately is in favor of leaving, uh, at least on, on the best terms they can get, Sign a treaty in 1835, and even though that would technically be an act of treason under the Cherokee Constitution, under their their law, uh, the U.S. government says, "Nope, you signed this treaty. Off you go." And so, in about three different waves, they're forced. Now, there's some who voluntarily move. There are some that are literally drug kicking and screaming. All right, so it's it's. An interesting mix, about 16,000 or so. And again, about 2,000 to 4,000 are going to die uh, along the way. Now, you would think after thousands of people have died in a process of forced removal, the federal government would go, you know what, let's not do that again. You'd be wrong. Because in 1864, they're going to do it again. In 1864, they're going to do it again. Uh, Now, some of this has to do with the Civil War itself. In 1860, actually 1861, large chunks of the U.S. Army can be drawn off the Great Plains and sent back east to fight. Which means that what you're going to end up having in the West uh, is mostly territorial militia, and so that's going to be a bit of an issue. Right. even with the US army there that's not a guarantee that treaties will be upheld and things like that but now because of the, the civil war right the, there are some native american tribes and nations that will side with the confederacy not necessarily because they agree with the confederacy but because the confederacy has promised them land right a recognition of land brandon did you have a question yeah um, did uh did, did, those tensions
0: with the when they signed with when they
1: agreed well when they agreed with the confederates were there tensions between tribal members at that time too some um, yeah there's internal tribal yeah. you know conflict over whether or not to side with the confederacy yeah i mean so it's it, there is there's always tension that we're going to see um, many now the, the cherokee at one point actually i mean before they were forced into uh, Uh, Indian Territory, large chunks of them, uh, there were some that owned uh, slaves themselves. They had adopted uh, the notion of African slavery. So some of them would have supported conceptions of the Confederacy. Anyway, in fact, the very last Confederate general to surrender is going to be uh, a Cherokee general. Um, Stan Wadey, I believe his name was. Sounds right in in my head. so uh, there's going to be some that are going to fight for the Confederacy because they believe in in, in ideas of the Confederacy. Some are just going to support the Confederacy because uh, the the devil that promised me the best is the devil I go with. You know, I mean. So, um, and because of all those internal tensions, right? Uh, it's hard to know kind of who's with who. Uh, and then of course you've got the, the U.S. Army not overly concerned about identifying clearly who is with who. Right? That's just, it's, it's, it's all kind of a muddled problem to begin with. And there have been claims in the New Mexico Territory of the Kiowa, the Comanche, and the Navajo uh, supporting the Confederacy. And some groups do, many don't. Um, and, and what happens Uh, Is in late 1863, there's this kind of fear that the Navajo on kind of the border between Arizona and New Mexico territory, right, that they are supportive of the Confederacy. There's no evidence for this, but in January of 1864, the U.S. Army sends Kit Carson, right, the famous mountain man Kit Carson, right, out with a, a unit to basically bring the Navajo in, to bring them from kind of that. Arizona New Mexico border bring them to Fort Sumner kind of the eastern part uh, of New Mexico several hundred miles Uh, and so 8,000 between 8 and 9,000 Navajo are going to be forced at gunpoint to march across New Mexico. Has anyone actually been to New Mexico? Have you been to the western part of New Mexico that you 've been there, I mean so we 're going through mountains, but it 's also fairly dry and kind of desert like yeah, eighteen days, several hundred miles. I want you to imagine that march i don't i don 't want to march anywhere i 'm just going to tell you that right now, but i don 't want to march for eighteen days with eight thousand people right that just feels bad like i don 't want to do this. They eventually get. To, to Sumner, uh, to the, the Bosque uh, Redondo area. And they're basically put into camps, for all intents and purposes, internment camps, overcrowded and undersupplied. And they're going to stay there for about four years, they're forced to live in these conditions. 200 people are going to die on the march, but because of the conditions, several hundred more are going to die in kind of eastern New Mexico. Eventually, in 1868, the U.S. government is going to sign a treaty with the Navajo and say, you can go home. It's now a reservation, and you cannot leave it. But off you go. Uh, So this kind of forced movement of populations is still ongoing. I mean, you can even make arguments obviously about the intern- internment of the Japanese during, or at least Japanese-Americans during World War II and kind of linking those. That's outside of our time range. But I think uh, you can make some sort of connections uh, there. All right. Questions about Trail of Tears, Long Walk? Yeah, Dawson.
0: Um, do they have any like st- written, like
1: recorded statistics for like how long they were making them Walking like every day. Oh, I people? don't know exactly how, like, how you know how much per day, but we're talking somewhere between three and four hundred miles in eighteen days. So I'm not a math magician, but I'm pretty sure you, yeah, someone can figure that one out. So, Samantha,
2: could it be argued that this would be like one of the first internment camps, even before World War II, or is this like a very different condition compared to what it would have been like? For
1: example, like in Nazi internment camps, kind of? Uh, it was, it's going to be it's a tricky question. Um, it's, it's, it's different on one level. It's going to be the same on another level. It is a, a movement of individuals, a forced movement of individuals to a specific location and then uh, into a confined space. Uh, that said, some of these camps, I mean, most of these camps don't have fencing around them, and that's not the case. So it's not like, it's not on that level, it's not the same. But in terms of um, those who leave the camps are then are tracked down and, and either killed or brought back. So on that level, I mean, these are places you're not allowed to leave. Right. So
2: so could it be argued that this would be like kind of the original? Or what I don't, or you,
1: I don't know if before? you could, because I, 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 I would actually argue, and I don't know, um, but I'd imagine colonial powers have been using, uh, concepts like this prior to the 1860s. And I imagine that, uh, even during things like the Crimean War there may have been aspects of this. I mean, so we're talking, who knows? Like, I don't know off the top of my head exactly when that begins, but the idea of moving a population and at least in a time of war makes, it seems like it's not a new concept but I don't have specific dates that could give you otherwise. Sorry. (laughs) Other questions? Great questions. Okay. And then let's shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about a different trail, the Oregon trail. Now I ain't gonna lie. I loved me the Oregon trail when it was the video game, right? The green screen, you know, ford the river. Oh, you died of dysentery, right? Uh, which the, the 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 text-based version of the game starts in the 1970s, but it becomes popular in the 1980s and the 1990s, um, right? And so it's this: you start in Independence, uh, Missouri, and you're supposed to lead your party uh, to the Willamette Valley, uh, crossing various rivers and and problems along the way, right? Broken axles and uh, all kinds of fucking dying of cholera and dysentery. What was so interesting in that game is that you never once encounter Native Americans. It's not part of the game. Which, if you think about it, doesn't make sense. It, it legitimately doesn't make sense. There's no way that you could have traveled from Independence, Missouri to the Willamette Valley in the 180 days to it uh, by the 1850s is 140 days. There's no way you could have done that without encountering Native Americans. And yet they're written completely out of the game. Right? Native Americans only kind of pop up in our vision of kind of the westward expansion that the Oregon Trail plays on in those Westerns. And then they're always presented as some sort of antagonistic force. Right? So it's really interesting, uh, if we get most of our history from pop culture, if you play Oregon Trail, you're missing some things. Um, But that said, Oregon Trail is a fantastic game and you should play it. Um, The reason you want to get to the Willamette Valley has everything to do uh, with the fur trade. Uh, And John Jacob Astor and his fur empire Uh, of the Pacific Northwest. And we're talking big money. right? The the fur trade is big, big money. Um, And the Oregon Trail itself, I mean, initially we're talking about fur traders. We're not talking about wagon trains initially. So the the trail that they blaze is not one that's easily traversed by people in covered wagons. Lewis and Clark's expedition out and then kind of following along those lines. Eventually by the 1830s, You get some of the first wagon trains. The problem is they get basically to Idaho. They get to uh, basically Fort Hall, and they're stuck. Because the the trail the rest of the way, you have to give up basically your wagon, put everything onto some donkeys, and and traverse the mountains that way. Because it's just not possible uh, in the early trail to actually get there by wagon. Now, by the 1840s, they've cut a bunch of new trails. And the thing is, there is no one singular Oregon Trail. There's a bunch of different things, all leaving from some point, uh, usually along the Missouri, somewhere in the Missouri Valley. And oddly enough, a lot of them converge at Fort Kearney, right, in um, what is Nebraska Territory. That's usually a conversion point. And they follow the the Platte River uh, and go through that region but then they also split off into a bunch of different ways. Some, right, the gold rush in California, some of them will follow basically the same Oregon trail to a point and then dive south into California. Some will follow the Oregon trail to a certain point and then dive off towards the Great Salt Lake, because we're talking about the, the movement of the Mormon populations. Some will, instead of staying in Oregon country, they'll kind of move and head up into the Puget Sound region. Right. So, but. The thing that, that's really interesting is um, we're talking about somewhere in the range of 400,000 people traversing land that, while the United States claims it, really don't have control over it. And those 400,000 people, they're going to encounter Native Americans. It's going to be part of how they do get across that territory. And there is a fear that as more and more settlers are passing through this great American desert, as they're moving across the Great Plains, I know you like to think that y'all are Midwestern, as you're moving across the Great Plains that this is going to lead to conflict. Right? And as more and more of these white settlers don't finish the journey, as they don't go to Oregon, as they stop along the way and start to claim chunks of land that are recognized as Native American land. That's going to be a problem. So in 1851 you get an attempt to kind of deal with some of this uh, in the Fort Laramie Treaty. uh, You can see Fort Laramie there in, at this point on this map is Nebraska territory, eventually be Wyoming territory, right? This is the first of two big treaties that are going to be signed at Fort Laramie. And what the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty is supposed to do, supposed to do, is recognize Native American claims, land claims, in the region. While at the same point, in exchange for that recognition and annuities, uh, annual payments of, of certain amounts of cash, two Native Americans. Um, specifically, we're talking about what? The Lakota, uh, the Cheyenne, uh, the Eurikara, the Arapaho, the Mandan. A couple others I'm, I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Crow. With a crow, yeah. Can't forget the crow, right? Were the Blackfeet also? Involved? I don't know. Anyway, um, recognizing their territory in exchange for kind of allowing safe passage for these settlers with the idea that they weren't going to stop. Right? You can pass through our territory to the Willamette Valley. That's perfectly fine with us. Right? In exchange for you not staying, you recognizing our land claim, eh, a little bit of money. That'd be nice. Now, originally, when the treaty is negotiated, it's a 50-year annuity. Right? So the idea is that until 1901, the US government will be paying these, uh, these tribes and nations for the right to go across their land. Uh, Congress changes it to a 10-year pay scheme without telling anyone who signed the treaty. Now, of course, when they find out, they're like, "Uh, no, that's not okay." Um, But regardless, the treaty was basically broken almost immediately, uh, in part because people are just refusing to go the rest of the way to Oregon. They're stopping. They're settling uh, uh, chunks of land. They're homesteading. Come back around to that as a concept. Um, but on top of that the US Army isn't doing what it said it would do, which is to either help these people along or stop them from you know, engaging in in negative activities towards Native Americans. Basically the US Army was just like, I don't care. Do whatever you want. And then when in 1860-61, in as the U.S. Army is being pulled out of the West and we turn to those state militias, you've now got, or these territorial militias, you've now got large numbers of white settlers in regions that they shouldn't be in competing for limited resources with the people whose land the United States actually recognizes it is. And when you have that type of reality, you're going to have a kind of a recipe for violence. So violence is actually going to escalate. And what ends up happening is, as kind of white settlers sometimes move into certain regions and they take some of those resources, it causes internal fights uh, within various Native American nations as as their limited resources, and they fight amongst themselves now. In other cases, it turns into those kind of... uh, Struggles that we see all too often between white settlers and Native Americans, and often only depicted from kind of the middle point of that struggle, right? The Native Americans coming in and attacking white settlers, as opposed to seeing it as the white settlers having essentially started that process by claiming that land that wasn't theirs in the first place. And we can see, I mean, like, this leads to significant tragedies, right? In 1864, in the Sand Creek Massacre, in Colorado is a direct example of this type of of problem. Now like I said we're not going to talk about war but in 1867 uh, the Grant administration is like we we need to, well Grant isn't president yet, but in 1867 there is this desire to find some sort of peace and so a peace commission is created by Congress and told to go out and solve the problem. They're not going to but they're going to be told to go and do it. The peace commission uh, is going to be identified as a fairly large failure, all things said and done, in part because it could never gain the trust effectively of Native Americans, and it could never effectively gain the trust uh, of the congressional individuals who sent them there in the first place um, for any number of reasons. But if there is a success, it's the Second Fort Laramie Treaty, and that's the 1868 Treaty. Success is kind of a bad word, because the the treaty is signed, and it's a fantastic treaty, except for then it's violated very quickly, just like the, the, the 1851 treaty. But in this 1868 treaty, the U.S. government recognizes and creates the Great Sioux Reservation, recognizing the Lakota claim to the Black Hills, essentially saying it's yours from now to the end of the universe. Most, uh, all of West River, South Dakota, is uh, part of the Great Sioux Reservation. The treaty is also going to say that they're going to close down the forts along the Bozeman Trail. Gold had been found in Montana, and so there had been an attempt to go out towards Bozeman and find the gold. And they say, well, we'll, we'll close down those forts. They don't, but like, they say they're going to. And they're going to recognize and defend and protect uh, you know, the boundaries of the Great Sioux Reservation. They don't. Um, 1874 gold is found in the Black Hills. Yay. Even, you notice like everything kinda has a connection back to gold being found. Gold was found in Georgia. Ooh, problem. Gold was found in California. Ooh, problem. Gold was found in Montana. Ooh, problem. Gold was found in Colorado, Pikes Peak. Ooh, problem. Yay. It's almost like there's a theme. Um, So they found gold in 1874, and basically, you know, the Custer expedition finds this gold. "Eh, Okay, this is a whole big problem. And rather than trying to keep white miners out of the Black Hills, which they are supposed to based upon the treaty, the U.S. Army is just like, yeah, okay, go ahead. Do your thing. And between 1876 and 1889, the U.S. government just unilaterally changes the Fort Laramie Treaty. It just changes it without getting the approval uh, of anyone else involved. Eventually just claiming the Black Hills. Now, in, in 1980, this issue was resolved Is a strong word, so we're not going to use it. It was taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court in uh, U.S. versus Sioux Nation of Indians uh, in which the Supreme Court recognized that that unilateral changing of the treaty, those actions taken by the federal government, were wrong. And the taking of the Black Hills was wrong. The U.S. government had violated the treaty. It was wrong for them to do it. And so the, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Lakota, giving, uh, I believe it was initially, what, 30 million, dollars, 35, $35 million, and then an additional 1. Uh, 1, $105 million on top of that, basically, to pay... For the value of of the Black Hills, so that the U.S. government will have bought the Black Hills. To this day, that money has not been touched. How much money do you know off the top? Of you had Brandon. I think
0: it's over four
1: billion. It's somewhere in the range. It's several billion. It's increasing every day with interest, and there's. No real desire to, to take because the thing is, if you take the, the money, then you're saying, Yes, of course, it's perfectly all right to have for the US government to have taken this land. I know there was an attempt at one point where the president wanted to, to sign, wanted to get the money, but yeah. he was immediately rejected. Yeah, there was, there was, there's been a couple actually, from what I understand, there's been a couple times where there's been, Well, maybe it's okay at this point to, to take the money, but there's this strong argument about never taking the money because that's then retroactively excusing the action that was taken. Um, and so there's this it was when I first moved out here I didn't realize in kind of this notion about occupied land uh and how important that still is to kind of culture here in Western South Dakota. I I didn't realize. Uh as I think many of us, you know, unless unless you've been here for a while, you don't see it. Samantha, yeah.
2: Attempts to keep white people out at one point? Like with Fort Stockade, they pulled all those people out and stuff. Was there, there kind of an attempt in the beginning to keep people out with that?
1: <laughs> yes. Or how in, you know, kind of... Um, I, mean, I don't want to say it was necessarily disingenuous and that they weren't trying, but how much their hearts were in it um, has always been... Uh, an issue that's been questioned about like how much they are actively trying to to do this and how much is going through the motions. Does that make sense? Kind of. Okay. Again, it's hard uh, for me to say specifically how many people were like, no, this is our job. We need to get them out. And how many people, uh, the overall kind of reaction in the U.S. Army was to basically allow it to happen. So, sorry. Wish I had a better answer than that. It's all complicated. Yay. You know, we just save a lot of time and effort if we just said history. It's complicated. All right. And just moved on from there. right Okay, done. By the way, you're not allowed to do that in your papers. You can't just say it's complicated and be done. Okay. All right. Last part we want to talk about, the last kind of movement. Uh has to do with uh acculturation and assimilation. So the first stuff we were talking about is more kind of this question of depopulation right? and settler colonialism. We want to focus now on this transition into more of acculturation and assimilation as part of settler colonialism. It's worth noting that in the Fort Laramie Treaty, there was also calls for, uh, kind of on these reservations, for there to be a movement towards farming. How serious that was, it's still a good open question, but that becomes kind of this key component, right? Since the 1840s, the way the United States has really kind of sought to occupy its territorial lands has been through this notion of homesteading. And it's important to realize when we talk about homesteading, it's based on a really important idea that uh, unowned resources, can be claimed by individuals who will then use those resources and and we're largely talking about land here but again notice it's unowned resources so whether we're talking about the settlement in kansas right kind of that homesteading process or the eighteen sixty two homestead law that gets passed by the united states government it is this idea that there's this unused resource that this land is not being used, or at the very least, not being used appropriately. Right. So this gets back to what Turner was talking about in this kind of free land idea, this kind of open space. And so, in 1862, the federal government actually passes a law saying that if you move out to this territory, you take uh, make a claim of 160 acres. Build a house, farm that land for five years, you can get title to that land. You now, 160 acres where I'm from back east, that's a sufficient amount of land for a subsistence farm. Out here, not so much, All right, just because the water resources are so limited in parts of the Great Plains. Brenda, did you have a question? Yeah. Did uh, the general public out east understand how dull
0: the soil in Barron House Place was?
1: No, no. So that, part, uh, they, they, it's, they didn't really. And so they understood on one level, right? because they called it the Great American Desert, and they understood that it was very difficult um, to find necessary water resources. But there's also this kind of idea that... Um, 160 acres, you know, anyone can make a good farm on 160 acres, not realizing. Well, uh, when you ask, well, where will the water come from? Well, you'll find it. No, no, you won't. Because they don't Because many of these people, the policymakers themselves don't come out and see and survey. And, and they're relying on uh, secondhand, thirdhand reports. Or they're just drawing lines on maps. And they're not really understanding. Um, if, if you go to parts of Indiana, Illinois, even Western Ohio, they are fairly flat. There's lots of rivers. So there's lots of water. And if that's your vision, and you just assume that Kansas looks the same as Iowa, or uh, as Ohio, right, in terms of access to water, you're not going to have a good understanding of what's going on. And didn't the Army Corps of Engineers come out to survey the Eventually, land? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Army? Oh, so that was before. So uh, the Army Corps of Engineers is surveying ongoingly. But it doesn't mean that the people who are writing the policy are listening to the Army Corps of Engineers. You'd think they would listen. Yes, I'm with you. I think <laughs> you're right. You think they would listen. But they're not uh, in some cases. In other cases, the, like so, I mean, obviously, the Homestead Law and a lot of these things are going to be debated. Right? Uh, and so there is going to be, they're going to bring in some of this. Um, but we are talking about very singularly minded individuals, you know, kind of this no, they know the right answer. And that's not I'm, not, I'm not trying to cast aspersions. but like They believe that they have the right answer, right, and that they understand. Um, and unless you have traveled significantly in the United States, even today, it's hard to know how, I mean, just how different regions of this country are. So, yeah, they just didn't understand. Uh, I, I think in that they just didn't understand, and some of that also, the, the Army Corps engineer in some cases are maybe in the mountains, so they're too far, they're like, so they're not really doing stuff on the planes. Or so there's there's any number of reasons for why they might not be listening to those reports. So Jericho it could have also stemmed from like a Eurocentric view from like Europe. There's been a lot of different places. So like, well, I think some Europe of this far could far. come from yes, a, a, a Euro-American perspective. But I think with the things like the homesteading law, it, their, their, their encouragement is for white settlers to move. So th- um, you would think that they would want to provide the best information, the best policies to facilitate that settler movement. Do you think
2: they were overshooting some of these people's abilities, assuming everybody could
1: do it? Could they have been uh, over abilities? I mean, yes. Um potentially. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, so the, but the idea is that 160 acres should be sufficient. All right. Realistically speaking, if you're talking in some of these regions without sufficient, kind of irrigation uh, technology, you're talking 320 to maybe 640 acres is like the minimum you need to run a subsistence farm. But don't tell someone in Pennsylvania that. Right? Like they're like, no, man. Like I can make it work on forty, you know, because it's just it's very like the land is so different, and it's hard for people to conceptualize just how different those things are. And I think more than anything, I I, maybe me is me giving them the benefit of the doubt more than I should. But I want to believe they're not. They're not acting in a way to be in. Intentionally, you know, harmful. It just they believe. Well, no, 160 acres should be sufficient. Yeah. So, I think if they, many more of them had traveled out here and so you know, "Oh, no," of, like, I think so. I think they just they thought they knew. I think we're all guilty of that on some level, right? At some point, someone comes to us with new information, like, "Oh no, I know," and then, "No, you really don't." I mean, like, I'm guilty of that. I'll at least admit that myself. Like, I'm guilty of that. So. Uh, like I said, I don't want to cast too many aspersions here. Brandon, do you have a, another? I to say they could have probably looked at Native American tribes themselves, and started, because okay. the Great Plains tribes—they are known for moving around.
2: Well, that's—but
1: that's not modern. That's not how you should live your life. <laughs> you should be sedentary. You should yeah. have a farm. Yes, you know, like obviously you're tribes wrong. Tribes the east settled because yeah, they then to yeah. 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 So you think that they would maybe like, oh, maybe there's a reason why they didn't? Yes, you would. Think that you'd want to think that that they would be able to. Oh, there's a reason for it, but they, they don't, because they believe they have the right answer. Like, like that's I think keeps coming back to Jericho. Uh, like with uh, whatever the guy with
2: the uh, civilized bar- barbaric and savage. Sure, Morgan. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think? Um, it was because they thought they were more like uncivilized, so they didn't know what they were doing. And that, yes. is, it was more of a...
1: Because uh, if you accept the idea that Native Americans are still locked in barbarism, then they lack the same kind of scientific knowledge to be able to understand their world sufficiently to make the best uses of those resources. So yeah, I think that, that plays into it definitely. Um, but then again, that doesn't answer the question. If you're going to send white settlers to this region, why would you not then check? I don't have good answers for that. I wish I did. No one does, I don't think. Wish I did. Um, and you can actually see again some of this them playing out. So that uh, in, in the Dawes Act in 1887, right? Again, kind of this idea of creating 160-acre plots taking the reservation lands and moving them from communally-owned lands to privately-owned lands, right, to individuals owning those chunks of land. And Dawes himself had talked about, his quote was, the, the need to adopt the habits of civilized life. Right, that's really the problem. Uh, really the problem here is that Native Americans just aren't civilized and that if we make them farmers, everything will be fine. And what's really interesting here is we're 1887. We're in the Gilded Age, kind of into the progressive era. In this, again, this question of what is an American and how does an American function, right? And this idea of the yeoman farming, uh, farmer as kind of the quintessentially American idea. There's also kind of the strong emphasis in capitalism. And if you have communally owned land, oh, that's not capitalist. But privately owned land, private ownership of the means of production, that enhances and expands the capitalist world, and therefore, this is good. Capitalism is the modern thing. So, Dawson. These
0: plots of land, like in in mind, were they, or did they also have a, a certain method of farming in mind? Was it like crops or like livestock? Yes, or? they
1: did. And largely, the, the their vision is kind of uh, farming as opposed to ranching, um, and they actually would send out scientific data for how to farm and most of the scientific data they sent was just wrong right and some of that some of that data was used well until like the 1920s and the 1930s it actually helps to explain the dust bowls of the 1930s they're using scientific information that was outdated or just wrong um, so yeah, they had a vision of kind of um, if we think just kind of the great Sioux reservation which then gets divided up into smaller reservations that they would just be like just Plots of farms as far as the eye can see, um, without river really kind of looking around, going, "That's not going to work in some of these places." Because again, they they believe they have the answer. They believe they have the answer, um, and, and so they're trying to make that work. Um, and so you have this idea: every head of household will get a chunk of land, and every household will have a certain amount. The thing is, then that gets subdivided amongst heirs, right? You know, um, and so that becomes a bit of an issue. I mean, if 160 acres wasn't enough to begin with, and then divide that amongst, say, two sons, now it's 80 acres, and that's definitely not going to be enough, and then further and further and further. Um, But the other thing that the Dawes Act does is that it opens up that land once the land had been kind of divided up amongst those people who were classified as classified as sufficiently Native American to receive a plot of land because they start defining who is and who is not Native American. How much blood do you have to have in order to be well full blooded versus mixed blooded and kind of what percentage? Ooh, they get kind of it's kind of a little bit of eugenics creeping in there. It's a little a little worrisome. Um, But once that happens, then they Take large chunks of the remaining land and open it up for sale to non-native settlers. So white settlers could buy these chunks of land from 1887 uh, until, say, 1934. Right in that kind of span, the Dawes Act takes Native American-owned land from about 138 million acres down to about 48 million acres. So 90 million acres are going to be lost as a result of this kind of allotment process. The Great Sioux Reservation, by its being broken up into the the different uh, chunks, they're going to lose 9 million acres themselves. It's going to be opened up uh, to to these types of um, white settlement uh, and and land grabs as well. And the thing is, uh, what would end up happening is the... Under the Dawes Act, uh, the head of household would get this, this land, it's this 160 acres, and they, it would be held in security by the United States for 25 years. Once they hit the 25-year mark, you could sell it. So what ended up happening is a lot of people started, you know, 25 years down the line, started selling off that land, again, to non-native uh, land buyers. So even the land that had been divided amongst uh, Native Americans is now going to be gobbled up. By white settlers as well, so like the whole process uh, shifts in that direction. So we're talking about again, kind of this massive restriction or loss of land uh, in this process. But again, the idea was to convert Native Americans to what is the modern way, uh, the modern American way of doing things. And so that that's their the this this whole process of assimilation isn't. Just something that's happening amongst Native you know, Americans with Native Americans. We're going to talk about this next week when we talk about immigration, right? And this process of what, how does one become American, right? And, and we're going to talk about settlement you know, about settlement houses in the Progressive Era. Right? They're different, but they have very similar goals in mind as the boarding schools. Right the boarding schools that are going to be created in the late 19th century, the idea of them, well, I mean, Richard Henry Pratt gives us the idea, right? To kill the Indian and save the man. The idea that by teaching and immersing individuals in kind of the white, middle-class American culture, you can erase the limitations created by being Native American and enter into the modern world. And again, what does it mean to be American? How, how do you get to that? Um, in 1879, the United States Indian Industrial School opens in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Sometimes it's just called the Carlisle School. All right. um, and it's run uh, by Richard Henry Pratt now, Richard Henry Pratt um, had been uh, the commander uh, at Fort Marion, I believe it was, Fort Marion in Florida. During uh, the, referred to as the Dakota War, or the Great Sioux War, however you want to define it, in 17, uh, 18, uh, seventy-six, right? Um, P.O.W.'s from that war, Native Americans were taken to Florida and held at Fort Marion. Pratt was in charge of the P.O.W.'s. And he got this idea in 1878 that if these P.O.W.'s were trained in English and American culture, that they could then return to the Great Sioux Reservation, they could return out west, and be emissaries for American culture. And so he actually kind of works with uh, the Hampton Institute in in Virginia, which was created in 1868 uh, as a school for um, freedmen to be trained how to be American after slavery. In 1878, they started an Indian school version of this, is what they called it, uh, there at Hampton. And then Pratt basically pitched this idea to Congress, and Congress was like, all right, cool. Let's do this. And so they set up this school in Carlisle, and he goes over, uh, and he is going to lead this. Uh, and from 1879 to 1918, about 10,000 Native American children are going to go through this school from about 140 different tribes. So I'm going to talk a lot of different people coming through this, but initially. The starting group, the initial children that were brought to Carlisle, are the Lakota. And they're brought as leverage to prevent another uprising. Basically, we have your kids. You can't fight back because we have your kids. Wow, U.S. government, good job. Come on, right? Whew. The moment you step foot in Carlisle, they basically, they stripped everything that was Native American of you, right? Every aspect of your heritage, from your hair to your clothes to your language to your religion. These 10,000 kids, most of them who didn't speak English at any, on any level were baptized as Christians without ever being told what that meant. So they're just kind of everything about you has to fundamentally You can't use your own name, like lists of names on, on, on like a board or on a wall, and you had to pick one. And so there's stories of, of, of people basically just pointing at a bunch of symbols. They don't know what they mean, and that becomes their name. You were severely beaten if you continue to use the language of your ancestors. By the way, that became a, a, a resistance tool. Remember when we were talking about slavery and kind of resistance activities? Right? So continuing to speak your own language became a resistance activity. Right? Breaking school property became a resistance activity. Right? So they're gonna fight back, don't get me wrong, they're not, these kids are not acquiescing. But we're talking about really, really regimented life, quasi-militaristic life, uniforms and drills and and all these types of things. And the Carlisle School becomes kind of the model for a bunch of federally funded, off-reservation schools. There's going to be 25, I think, at one point in 15 different states and territories. That doesn't count the hundreds of schools that are going to be on reservations that are largely run by religious organizations. In 1891, Congress passes a law requiring the compulsory attendance of Native American children in these schools. They have to go. And this law empowers federal agents to basically rip kids out of the arms of their parents and send them to these schools. All of this as a way to force assimilation. The idea is once they've gone through these schools, once they've been immersed in American kind of white culture, once they've learned English, once they've learned skills that are necessary in the industrial age, they'd be able to return to the reservations and be emissaries for this culture. And of course, when they returned, they often found they were ostracized and rejected because they were no longer of that culture. Or at least significant distance had been built between them. And we're talking about people coming back with significant problems. PTSD, right? High rates of depression. In these schools, we're talking... uh, Really poor conditions. In some cases, the kids had to build the very buildings they were gonna live in. Fantastic. Um, Suicide rates were extremely high at these schools. Kids built coffins for their classmates. Just think about how traumatic that is. I mean, not just for the person who has died, but the kids, oh yes, I'm building a coffin for my friend. Sexual abuse was rampant. Disease spread quite regularly and effectively and efficiently. Overcrowded and undersupplied. Tens of thousands of kids coming through this system. And what's so interesting is, again, this idea that they were supposed to go back to the reservation. And they were supposed to then help bring the rest of of, of their tribes and nations into the modern age through this new education that they've received. Many of them went back and used that education to fight. They went back and they filed lawsuits. They now knowing how the legal system worked. They went back as lawyers and fought. They went back and they set up schools on the reservations to teach their language and heritage. You will not destroy us. So it has the reverse effect in some cases, but all of this is part of this much larger process, right? This whole notion that we started from the settler colonialism idea. And what does it mean to be American and how does that work? you have all these people now that fit certain aspects of what it means to be American, but are they American? I mean, again, you can go back to the 1830s in the Cherokee. They they have uh, uh, printed newspapers. They have a a written constitution. They've adopted slavery. They've done all the things that white people have said you have to do in order to be part of this society, but they can never undo one thing. They're always going to be Native American. They're never going to be white. And if that's the case, can they ever claim to be an American? Like I said, one of the things we're going to talk about the next couple weeks is what does it mean to be an American. So we start here with Native Americans. We're going to talk about Americans by choice, if you will, next week when we start talking about immigration and things like that. Are there any questions, concerns, issues at this point? All right. Well, groovy. Well, then I will see you next week. All right. And we'll pick up with immigration and we'll go from there. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening to C SPAN's Lectures and History podcast. Interested in hearing more about history, literature, and public affairs? Check out BookNotes Plus. Taking the concept from Brian Lamb's long running BookNotes TV program, the podcast offers listeners more books and authors. BookNotes Plus features a mix of new interviews with authors and historians, along with some old favorites from the archives. The platform may be different, but the goal is the same. Give listeners the opportunity to learn something new. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.